Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is the restart of our Pali Canon and English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. This is a year and a half program that is going to walk you through this book series, The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're walking through volumes 2 through 13 over the course of a year and a half. We're going to be going through this program 10 chapters at a time. And today we're going to be studying volume 2, chapter 1 through 10. But before we actually get to that, since this is a restart of this program, I thought what I would do is spend some time talking about ways that you can actually be successful in this program. We're going to talk about what the program is, why somebody would be interested in taking this program, and then how to actually benefit and get the most benefit out of the program. So I'd like to welcome all of you guys, whether you're attending this live in one of the places that we're streaming or on Zoom, or whether you're listening to this on the replay, I'd like to welcome everyone. I'm going to switch over to some visual aids here to help me share with you guys what is the program, why somebody would be interested in taking it, and then how you can actually be successful in this program and get the most benefit out of the program itself. So the first thing to talk about is what is the actual Pali Canon in English study group or this words of the Buddha Pali Canon in English study group. What it is is it's a live interactive in-person or online program that helps you to learn with the words of the Buddha. I teach this program at 9 a.m. on Saturday mornings at a temple here in Chiang Mai. It's called Wat Tung Yu. So you can attend on Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. live if you like. Or I also teach at 9 p.m. Thai time right here online, and that gets live streamed out. And these classes are essentially the same. So if somebody was here in Chiang Mai, if you were traveling, if you were touring, you might decide to come in and learn, or if you live in Chiang Mai, or if you're missing that class and or you don't live in Chiang Mai, you can actually attend by Zoom, Facebook, YouTube, and it's also recorded on our podcast. So you can listen to it at any point in time, whether you would like to go to YouTube or Facebook or our podcast, even if you can't make the live class on Saturday here online or at the temple, you can actually watch it on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or some other day. The way that the program is, is we actually usually start with a breathing mindfulness meditation, just a brief meditation to prepare the mind. And then we move into studying 10 individual chapters in the book. Now, 10 chapters sounds like a lot, but some of these chapters are only about a paragraph long. And then there's some reflections that I share in order to help you better reflect on the actual words of the Buddha. And I would say, you know, the average chapter is probably two or three pages long. So the 10 chapters would take you about 
an hour to actually read them in a given week. But I'm going to give you guys tips on how to actually read and how to digest the content so that you can get the most benefit out of the program when we talk about how to actually go forward in the program. There is a Facebook group called Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, where I do daily posts of the content from the book, and students are able to ask questions there. So that's an option for you to actually get help in the program as well and see the actual chapters that are being posted from the 10 that we're studying that particular week. There's a YouTube video library where I've taught this program now. This will be the third time that I've gone through it. So you can actually go back to the classes that I've taught before and actually see those as well. Of course, you probably are going to stay current with this particular program. But if you're interested in seeing some of the other programs that I taught, which is the same content, but perhaps with different questions from students, that might be an option for you as well. So there's the video library, there's the podcast, there's even audiobooks and quizzes that are part of the whole set of resources that I share. So you're welcome to use all of these resources to help you progress on the path to enlightenment. And then there's ongoing support where you can ask questions during classes, you can post in the Facebook group, you can send me a private message, or you can schedule a personal guidance session where you either meet with me on Zoom or you can meet privately if we're in the same place together. If you're in Chiang Mai or any of the other places that I travel to, you can always reach out and I'd be pleased to meet with you in person as well. So these are all options for you to get help is you can ask questions in class, you can post in the Facebook group, you can send a private message, or you can schedule a personal discussion with me at any point because you're gonna to need to have clarity. It's not possible for you to just read a book and then get to enlightenment. You're gonna need some interaction with the teacher. Let's talk about why somebody might be interested in studying in this particular program and what the actual benefit would be for someone who does choose to study in this particular program. The path of the Buddhas, this path to enlightenment, is all about training the mind in order to get to enlightenment, this mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It has eliminated all discontent feelings from the mind, such as sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment, stress, anxiety, even the slightest little displeasure or ickiness is eliminated from the enlightened mind. It no longer experiences even the slightest dissatisfaction any longer. And this is how people knew that the Buddha was a Buddha because when you learn his teachings, you're not believing his teachings, but you're learning them. You're reflecting on them to independently verify them and then you're practicing them to see the truth. You can see the condition of your mind is improving gradually, slowly, but surely because you know what it feels like to be angry or sad or frustrated or feel stress or anxiety. You know what those feelings feel like. And if you've been dedicating your time, effort, energy, and resources to learning and practicing this path and you've been actively training your mind to work towards enlightenment and you see the discontentedness gradually diminishing and then ultimately it's completely eliminated you will know that your mind is getting closer to enlightenment and actually have attained enlightenment because you see the condition of the mind improving this is where the buddhist teachings aren't based on belief oftentimes traditions like this it's believe 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 and you hope something good happens when you die but you don't necessarily know whether that's true or false until you die 
And by that time, it's too late. Instead, the Buddhist teachings are learned now, reflect and independently verify the teachings now, practice the teachings now in this life, and see the results now in this life. This is how you know you're moving in the right direction because the discontentedness is gradually diminishing and it ultimately gets eliminated. You can observe that as you're learning the wisdom of the Buddha, that certain times in your life where you maybe you felt like you had so many problems and you had to address all these problems that were coming up in your life, you might notice that with this wisdom that you're having from the Buddhist teachings, that now you can apply that wisdom to your day-to-day life and you're no longer struggling and having you know, such difficulties in life that you have in the unenlightened state. Instead, as you arise this wisdom from the Buddhist teachings and you apply it in life, instead of looking at it as you have all these problems, you'll start noticing that you might look at it something as a certain challenge. And when you face this challenge with wisdom, making wise decisions, then you can experience wholesome results. But in the unenlightened state, there isn't the wisdom there to address certain issues that are coming up in your life. So you might look at them as problems. And now you might make unwise decisions that lead to certain unwholesome results. But when you start transforming the mind through studying the teachings of the Buddha, then you'll actually see that you have the wisdom that you need to actually move forward in life and address these challenges that you're experiencing. You'll notice that your personal and professional relationships will really blossom because oftentimes in our relationships in the unenlightened state, we blame other people for the problems that we're experiencing in our life. And this can put a real rub and real difficulties in our relationships. But when you observe and you understand that all the difficulties and challenges and struggles that you're having, they're all self-imposed. They're all happening within your own mind due to the pollution of mind. So when you learn this with the teachings of the Buddha and you apply the antidotes or the solutions that he teaches and you train your mind, now you can have more harmonious relationships both personally and professionally and you'll be able to see that as your relationships improve that it's the wisdom of the teachings of the buddha that are helping you to do that you'll also observe that you'll have increased focus concentration clarity of mind and memory these are qualities of mind that arise as a result of getting rid of all the pollution the teachings of the Buddha, he's identifying various pollutions that he discovered in the unenlightened mind, and he explains the antidotes of how to uproot these and eliminate them from the mind. And when the mind is burdened with these pollutions, you're going to lack focus and concentration. The Buddha calls this muddle-mindedness, that the mind is very muddled. And now when you train your mind and you get rid of more and more of this pollution, you'll see this focus, this concentration, clarity of mind, and this deep memory that starts coming into the mind. And then lastly, something that will also occur as a result of getting to enlightenment where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, is you will eliminate this constant cycle of rebirth. Prior to right now, this existing life that you have, there's been many, many, many countless lives. And if a being doesn't get to enlightenment, there's going to be more lives in the future. But this is something that you can learn as part of this path, but it's not something that's utterly important for you to understand right now. In this Pali Canon English study group, by the time we get to volume 11, 
we will be studying the cycle of rebirth and getting to that in detail. But at the very beginning of somebody's approach and progress and starting the path to enlightenment, I always suggest to put the cycle of rebirth to the side because what happened in the past is in the past and what may or may not happen in the future is in the future. What you would really like to do is focus on the present moment that now that you're in this human state is focus on getting to enlightenment where you can train the mind to eliminate discontent feelings and get to this peace and this joy. And having done that, you will escape this cycle of rebirth. The Buddha never used the cycle of rebirth as a way of guilt, shame, or fearing somebody into learning and practicing his teachings. Because remember, his goal is to eliminate discontent feelings such as guilt, shame, and fear. So he's not going to use guilt, shame, and fear in order to persuade somebody to learn and practice his teachings. But he did share the natural laws of existence and the cycle of rebirth is part of those natural laws that you can understand that the mind is stuck in this constant cycle of rebirth. And when you see the same problems coming up in your life over and over and over and over again, this is the cycle of rebirth. This is the discontentedness, this cycle just continuing over and over again. And you can break this cycle and you can eliminate this cycle by eliminating the pollutants of mind. And at the same time that you train the mind to get to this peace, calm, serenity, and contentedness with joy, then you're also eliminating the cycle of rebirth, which is ideal because you're kind of getting two benefits for the price of one, so to speak. The book series that we're going to be using as part of this program is the words of the Buddha, the path to enlightenment revealing the hidden. This is the book series that you would like to acquire and you can get this for free. You can go to the website buddhadailywisdom.com and you can download each one of these books or you can take that file and go print it if you would like to get a printed copy and you can even order these on Amazon. If you have access to Amazon, you can get printed copies or you can get Kindle versions. Now this book series is ideal for you to be able to learn the Pali Canon because the Pali Canon is actually in 45 large volumes of books. They're about four to six inches thick. And these 45 volumes of books would take you probably a good 10 years to read them all, let alone actually understand them and make progress. But a team of people here in Thailand went out and they consolidated the teachings of the Buddha into individual books. And what I did is I took those books and I updated the word choices. Some students added references. I added some reflections from a dedicated practitioner and teacher to help you understand more of what you're seeing in the words of the Buddha. He spoke very clear, very concise, very precise, but it really helps to have a dedicated teacher, a dedicated practitioner to kind of walk you through that. And that's what this program is about. And you'll see in these books that I share the reflections that you might think about as part of reading the words of the Buddha. But you shouldn't just rely on what I share as reflections. Instead, you use them as a starting point and to help you understand what it is that the Buddha is teaching you. Even though he teaches very clear, very concise, and very precise, you'll see the words that I share there to help you connect his words to other things. Because what you're going to see in these books is you're going to see a consolidated version of the Pali Canon. The Pali Canon is the original source teachings of the Buddha. We call it the Pali Canon because 
it was written down in this Pali language. During the lifetime of the Buddha, the teachings weren't actually written down during his lifetime. It wasn't until about three months after he died that people got together and started working on actually assembling his teachings in written format. And what we have access today is called the Pali Canon, but those teachings have been moved into English. And when you see the Pali Canon, there's these very long sutras where the Buddha might be talking about 10, 20 different topics at any one given time. And that's a lot for the mind to digest, particularly in the unenlightened state where there's a lot of pollution and there's a lot of difficulties in the mind to actually understand and internalize and retain certain things that have been taught. So this book series takes excerpts out of these long discourses. And rather than have 10 or 20 different topics to wrap your mind around, there might just be one or two or three things that are in that little excerpt in the chapter. And this is where it might just be a paragraph or a couple of paragraphs. And that's why the reference is in there so that you can see what the Buddha was teaching before and what he was teaching after this excerpt, if you would like to explore it further. But this book series organizes the teachings in a way that's easily digestible and it gives you a consolidated version that it's not going to take you 10 years to learn the path to enlightenment through the words of the Buddha. Instead, this program is a year and a half because you're gradually interested in kind of drip feeding the teachings of the Buddha into the mind. You wouldn't be interested in sitting down and just reading an entire book in one day because it's too much content. It's too many things to really think about in just one sitting. You would like to sit down and maybe read 10 or 20 minutes at a time and then sit with that, reflect on it, digest it, kind of apply it in life, go around and try to independently verify these teachings. So this book series is something that you're going to really benefit from. And there's people here in Thailand, including myself, and even some students that have been studying with me for a while who contributed to proofreading this, to finding the references for them. And you'll be able to now benefit from these books that are available for you. And this Pali Canon, that's 45 large volumes, typically will cost about $1,000 or more to actually acquire a set. But by consolidating it in this way, I can now give it away for free by using the internet and you being able to download it, or there can just be a nominal fee for you to get it printed through Amazon or something like that. Because this is one of the reasons why the teachings of the Buddha are fairly unknown in the world right now is because they're kind of tucked away. The average person who considers themselves a Buddhist hasn't actually studied with the words of the Buddha. Even here in Thailand, there's over 30,000 temples throughout Thailand. The average temple doesn't actually have a set of the Pali Canon. And if they do, the ordained practitioners aren't necessarily studying with it. Now, if you come from a Christian background and you're used to seeing the Bible pretty much everywhere and anywhere, you might say, wow, you mean ordained practitioners, monks don't even study with the words of the Buddha? They're not even necessarily accessible at the temples? Well, the answer is yes, that's actually 100% true, that the way that the teachings of the Buddha have been shared for so many years is through an oral tradition. And in an oral tradition, it opens up a lot of room for changes. And people might just mistakenly, inadvertently change things, or maybe they have good intentions and they're trying to change the teachings of the Buddha. It's hard to say because there's been so many people that have kind of put their slant on the Buddhist teachings. But when you go back to the original source, 
the poly cannon. Now you're going back to an original point in time where these are the words of the Buddha. And now you don't believe those. Instead, you learn them, you reflect on them, and you practice them. And then you can see the truth that the condition of the mind is improving. If you just learned in the oral tradition, or if you've learned from other authors and other books that are out there that they're not based on the words of the Buddha, then you're going to be now studying with the original words of the Buddha, and they can be very penetrating to help you see exactly what he did teach and what he didn't teach. Because one of the biggest myths in the Buddhist community is that the Buddha actually sat under a tree, he meditated, and he instantly got to enlightenment. This actually isn't true, and you can see that in the words of the Buddha where he teaches and he says that that's not how you attain enlightenment. It doesn't happen all of a sudden. It's gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. And this is why you would be interested in studying with the words of the Buddha, because a Buddha is the originator, the discoverer, and the declarer of the path to enlightenment. Anybody who's changed his teachings after his death this isn't going to lead to enlightenment because they've changed the teachings of a Buddha. A Buddha arises to enlightenment and they awaken to enlightenment based on their own pursuits, their independent journey to enlightenment. They independently discover the teachings. So anything that doesn't lead and contribute to enlightenment, they discard it. The only thing that a Buddha knows by the time they get to enlightenment is the path to enlightenment. This is why we call them perfectly enlightened because they don't hold on to baggage because they don't have a teacher that's sharing with them the teachings and then maybe out of respect they might hold on to some of the teachings that their teacher shared with them but a buddha actually doesn't have any teachers or any guides instead they independently get to enlightenment through their own pursuits and their own independent effort their own journey and anything that doesn't serve them on this path to enlightenment they just discard it so by the time a Buddha starts teaching, they deeply understand the teachings, and now they can illuminate this path to enlightenment very clearly. It's like putting lights down along the side of the path so that you can see it more and more clearly. So when you study with the words of the Buddha in this book series, you're going to be able to see exactly what he taught and exactly what he didn't teach, and you're going to be able to have these reflections from a dedicated practitioner and teacher right alongside of them, and you're gonna be able to come to classes like this in order to get help and clarity and to help you understand how to apply these teachings in daily life. So this book series is vitally important for you, and if you study those before the class, you actually get a lot more benefit. You can also study them after the class as well, but by you actually studying beforehand, it'll actually help you to come into class with perhaps some questions. But if for some reason you didn't study in a particular week, just feel free to come to class anyway because we're going to actually be reading the chapters in the class and talking about them and discussing them. So still come to class, but if you read before and or after the class, you'll actually get a lot more benefit out of the class itself. Now let's talk about how do you actually move forward in terms of the actual program itself, studying these books. Well, it's essentially going to be 10 chapters a week in most weeks. And as I mentioned, these chapters are relatively short. It would only take you about an hour if you read them all at the same time, but you're really not interested in reading them in that way. It's best to read them about 10 or 20 minutes a day 
Maybe just sit down, read 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, and then put it down. Just maybe one or two chapters. And then this will help you to take small little bites, chew it, and digest it. Rather than taking one big bite and trying to chew on that, that would be really difficult to actually digest. So these in-person and online classes, both here at the temple in Thailand and online through Zoom or through Facebook and YouTube, is an opportunity for you to attend live. And when you can't attend live, just remember they're recorded and available for you on replay, and you can watch them at whatever time you have available to you. The group learning program that I teach on Sunday and Wednesday in the same place here in the temple and also here online, this is a real good foundation and a good framework for you to get started. And that program is kind of like a bachelor's or master's degree in Buddhist studies, where this program, the Pali Canon in English, is like a PhD program. It's an independent study program. It's on your own independent journey, where you're taking responsibility for all your learning and growth, and you're coming to the teacher just to seek guidance in these classes and ask questions. So in the group learning program, I will go through this first book of volume one of this same book series, and I will do discourses and I will have talks about each individual chapter and kind of walking you through a bit more closely. But by the time you get to the Pali Canon and English study group, where we're studying volumes two through 13 of this book series, this is where you're really doing all the work where you're reading the chapters, you're reflecting on them, you're coming up with questions, you're coming to class, and you're really just asking for my advice and my guidance in how to understand some of the chapters that you might have had some challenges with, or how do you apply it in your daily life and things like this. So always remember that it's an independent study, it's independent journey. Even in the group learning program, it's still an independent journey. As you're learning the teachings, you should never believe anything about the teachings of the Buddha. The Buddhist teachings aren't believe, 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 and then hope something good happens for you at the end of your life. Instead, you're learning the teachings so that you can independently verify them and then practice them to transform the mind. What you're trying to do is get to wisdom. And the way you get to wisdom is you independently verify the teachings and you practice the teachings so that you know the truth for yourself. Nowadays, with so much misinformation out there and with belief, you don't know what's true and what's false. So belief isn't going to actually lead to enlightenment. It's only when you get to wisdom that now the mind has more wisdom to be able to make wiser choices about how you conduct yourself in the world. But if you just believe the teachings of the Buddha, you're not actually doing the work to gain the wisdom. And then this wisdom is what's going to help you to make wiser decisions in life. So it's important that you learn, reflect, and practice so that you can get to this wisdom, and that's what's going to ultimately propel you to enlightenment. As you're going in this program, it's very important that you develop or maintain a daily meditation practice. If you don't already have a meditation practice well-established in breathing mindfulness meditation and loving-kindness meditation, you can reach out to me and let me know and I'll help you get established with a meditation practice. That's what the group learning program is for. But if you're joining this program and having not taken the group learning program with me, it's okay. But you're going to need a breathing mindfulness meditation practice and a loving kindness meditation practice because this goes along with learning the 
words of the Buddha, you're going to need to be meditating at the same time to train the mind and transform the mind. If you were just coming to class and asking questions and things like that, okay, that's a certain start. But when you combine it with the actual training outside of class where you're doing the work to read the teachings, to investigate them, to reflect on them, to practice the teachings, to include meditation, this is where you're going to see all the real results of you transforming your mind and training your mind. If you've learned in other programs before, I encourage you to kind of set aside anything that you've learned about the teachings of the Buddha, unless you've learned with the words of the Buddha. Because oftentimes people might come to learn with me and they feel like they've learned the teachings of the Buddha, but they've never actually studied with the words of the Buddha. And that's okay because those things have led you to where you are today. But if you haven't studied with the words of the Buddha, then you haven't actually studied the path to enlightenment yet. I've had people that have considered themselves Buddhist for 30 years. They were even a monk for 15 years at a certain point in their life, but they've never actually studied with the words of the Buddha, even though they've considered themselves Buddhist for 30 years and even have been a monk for 15 years. They've never actually studied with the words of the Buddha. So there's a lot of things that they believed and they thought were true that once they studied with the words of the Buddha, they could see the truth for themselves, that what they had learned through the oral tradition or through other people that weren't the words of the Buddha, they could see that they were off in terms of what they were understanding. And this is why in 30 years, they still hadn't got to enlightenment yet because they weren't studying with the words of the Buddha. When you study with the words of the Buddha, his wisdom is very penetrating. You can see very clearly what did he teach and what he didn't teach. So anything that you've learned in the past, even though I know it's really hard to do, you're going to need to set those things aside and approach this with an open mind so that you can learn the true teachings of the Buddha through his own words. As you're learning, there's most likely going to be things that conflict with what you currently understand about the path to enlightenment. If you haven't been studying with the words of the Buddha, there's going to be things that he's going to share with you and I'm going to share with you that are different than what it is that you've actually learned before. And to me, this is a very, very good thing. If you were learning with me and everything I taught you was exactly the same things that you already know, you have no use for me as a teacher. I'm completely useless because you already know everything that I'm sharing with you. But if you're in a class with me and I'm sharing things with you that you don't know, or it conflicts with what you currently think you understand, this is a very good position to be in. Because if you know that your mind is currently unenlightened and the teacher that is sharing things with you is different than what you currently know, then that's new wisdom that you don't understand yet. And remember, I'm not asking you to believe anything that I share. So you learn what I share, you reflect on it to independently verify it, and you practice it to see the truth for yourself. And if what I'm sharing with you is different than what you currently understand, and you do need to set aside things that you've learned before, this is very good because now you're actually learning new wisdom. And by keeping an open mind and understanding that, yes, it's going to be a challenge to really work to understand the teachings of the Buddha, then you can approach this with an open mind and it will really help you to progress on your path to enlightenment. Let's talk about the actual reading itself 
and how I might recommend for you to approach the reading. Because as you're reading each of these individual chapters and you're reading each of these books, it's important to understand that it's not casual reading. You shouldn't just be sitting back like a storybook or a novel and just taking it in almost like entertainment or something like that. Instead, when you're reading the words of the Buddha, understand that you need to be active in your reading. You need to be investigating the teachings so that if there's a word that you don't understand, for example, that you might need to look that up because there are certain words that you might feel that you know the definition to, or there might be certain words that you don't know the definition to. And you're going to need to actively look that up and investigate the meaning of that word. And this is part of the path to enlightenment is understanding language and how language is actually used. Because oftentimes the way that we use language isn't the actual real meaning of the language. So it's important that you look at each of the chapters and each of the paragraphs, each of the sentences and the words, and where you're having challenges to understand is to look that up and investigate it through dictionaries and online resources and things like this. Don't assume that you know the meaning of words because of impermanence. The way that an author might be using a word might be very different than what you understand the word to mean. So be sure that you investigate the definitions of these words and where you need help, you can always reach out and ask for help. As you're reading, don't be concerned about the completion of the work, right? You're not interested in sitting down and just getting to the end of the 10 chapters and just doing it for the sake of doing it. Or you're not interested in just getting to the end of the book just for the sake of getting to the end of the book. Instead, what you should be doing is reading for comprehension. Ensure that you understand each sentence and each paragraph so that if you pick up a book and you're reading a certain paragraph and you're like, whoa, that's deep. I need to sit with that for a while. Even though you might have sat down and thought that you were going to read for 15 or 20 minutes, if you sit down and in the first three minutes you read something, it's like, whoa, I don't know what to do with that. I need to sit with that. I need to go out into the world and investigate it. I need to talk to my teacher and get help with this. I don't know that I understand how to independently verify this. So you're not reading for completion and just to get to the end of the assignment, so to speak. Instead, you're reading for comprehension and be sure that you actually understand the teachings and then how to apply them in your life through your daily life. And as you're investigating these teachings, you might notice that there's this zeal or this excitement that springs up in the mind because we've gone through many, many births and we've gone through this life for a really long time not understanding true reality, not understanding this path to enlightenment. And now when you're finally getting the words of the Buddha and this real penetrating wisdom, you might notice this excitement or this zeal that springs up into the mind. And what you would like to do is you'd like to temper this a bit. You're not interested in allowing the mind to run away with this excitement. So if you notice that the mind is starting to get this zeal or this excitement that springs up in the mind, you're going to need to temper that and bring that down into the middle. And this is important in terms of when you choose to read. If you're choosing to read like right before going to bed, you might notice that this excitement springs up into the mind and it's very challenging for you to sleep sometimes. So if you notice that this zeal or this excitement is springing up in the mind through reading the teachings of the Buddha, this is completely normal. You're just going to need to learn how to restrain the mind and pull it back so that you can temper this a bit. 
And when you start reading, even though you might be planning to read for 15 or 20 minutes, and this zeal or excitement rises up in the mind, you might try to read more and more and more and more and more and more because of this excitement, because of this craving or longing or yearning. This is where you're going to need to restrain the mind and pull it back and understand that 10, 15, 20 minutes of reading per day is really where you should cap things because you're interested in reading for comprehension not just to complete a project. So be ready to put the book down and reflect on certain aspects of the teachings as you're reading them. Even if you plan to read for 20 minutes and in the first three to five minutes, you find something that's, whoa, I need to chew on this for a while. I need to think about this for a while. If you get to that point, be willing to put the book down. That's part of restraining the mind and not allowing craving to obsess the mind and take over the mind. And then feel free to ask questions before class, during class, after class, at any time that you'd like to ask questions, I've provided you guys the ways that you can do that. You can ask questions in class, you can post them in the Facebook group, you can send me a private message, or you can schedule personal guidance. These are the four different methods that you can use in order to get help with these teachings. So if you have questions before class, feel free to ask them if you like. If you have questions during the class and you'd like to get help there, feel free to do that. If after the class you've been thinking about the teachings and you need to ask more questions, then feel free to do that. You're going to need to ask questions in order to get clarity. You wouldn't be able to just read a book and actually get to enlightenment. And then lastly, let me just share with you some websites that would be helpful for you in order to get access to the things that I've been talking about. This first one is the website that, or the web page that's going to have access to the Polycanon English Study Group. If you go to bit.ly forward slash Polycanon Study Group, this is going to take you to the full description of what the Polycanon Study Group is. It's going to give you all the login information. It's going to give you access to the YouTube channel, the podcast, the books. It's going to show you the full schedule of classes and each date and what we're going to be studying for each individual class session so that you know what book to read and what chapters to read. You can also access the same information by going to buddhadailywisdom.com. If you go there under online classes, you'll see the link for the Pali Canon and English Study Group, as well as all the other online resources that I have. And you'll even find the classes, courses, and retreats, which are in-person training that I do here in Thailand, but also I travel in other parts of the world like the USA. And this year we're going to India, Nepal, things like this, that you can see all of these things and you can have access to all of these things so that you can participate and actually get help that you need on the path to enlightenment. And then this is the link for the Facebook group, which is facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash daily wisdom 999. That's going to take you to the actual Facebook group where we participate as an online community and you'll be able to glean insight there because the way that this group is set up is that students post questions and then I answer them. Other students aren't in there answering your questions for you. It's just the teacher that's answering your questions. So you're not going to find a bunch of arguing or fighting or bickering or hostility or things like this. That's not the way this Facebook group is operated. Instead, it's just students asking questions. It's essentially like an online classroom. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about the program itself before we actually move into studying the actual program. 
Do you guys have any questions on anything that I've shared so far? If you have questions, if you're in Zoom, if you could electronically raise your hand, that would be great because there's no moderators today. And if you're in YouTube or Facebook, I'm going to try to look at those questions myself and see if I can actually see any questions that you guys might have. So I'll just pause here and see if we have any questions coming in. All right, it doesn't look like we have any questions right now. So I'm just gonna go ahead and move into the actual Polycanon and English study group where each week what we're gonna be doing is actually studying individual chapters from these books. So from this book series, we're going to be studying today volume two, chapters one through 10. And typically what we will have done is we would have already done meditation at this point, and then we're gonna move into the actual studying part. But today, since I did this little talk, we're not gonna do the meditation, we're just gonna move right into the actual study. But next week, we'll start with the meditation and then move into the study. The way that we do this is a student will volunteer to read the individual chapters. And then after the student reads a chapter, I will share teachings on that particular chapter to help you understand. And then I will open up to any questions that you might have related to the individual chapter. And when I'm teaching you about each individual chapter, I'm just teaching you to kind of a, a very broad level. It's not the same level of depth that I've written in the actual book itself. If you read the reflections that I put into the actual book, you'll see much deeper level of detail of what I've shared there. But here in the class, I'm just kind of generally talking about this chapter and then opening up to any questions that you guys might have. So there'll be the reading from the student, there'll be the teachings from me, and then an opportunity for you guys to go deeper into each individual chapter and asking any questions that you might have. So what I'd like to do is offer anybody who's in Zoom the opportunity to read these chapters. The first one that we'll be reading is chapter one. If somebody would like to volunteer to read this, if you could just raise your hand, that would be wonderful and I'll be able to call on you and you can unmute yourself and then you can actually read the chapter. All right, looks like we have a volunteer for chapter one. I'm sorry, sir, I can't remember how to pronounce your name. Can you remind me how to pronounce your name? It's Oldun. Kodun. Yes. Okay, I think I've got it now because I see it in writing and I hear it. Kodun. Yeah, you know the K and H in Arabic are pronounced as Kha. Kodun. Khaldun, yes. Kodun. Okay. Yes. Thank you for teaching that to me. I appreciate that. Thank you, sir. All right, if you'd like to read the first chapter, and then uh, after you read, I will share teachings, then I'll open up to any questions that you guys have. Okay, I'm only seeing the, the page which is, is here on, on Zoom. Yes, I'm gonna be scrolling for you so that you'll be okay. able to read the entire chapter as I scroll. Okay, I will give it a try, thank you. Sure. Uh, chapter one, words which should be studied, learned, and investigated in the foremost assembly. And what is the assembly trained in investigation, not in concited talk? Here, in this kind of assembly, when those discourses are being recited that are merely poetry, composed by poets, beautiful in words and phrases, created by outsiders, spoken by their disciples, the monks are not interested to listen to them. 
do not lend an ear to them or apply their minds to understand them. They do not think those teachings should be studied and learned. But when those discourses spoken by the Tathagata are being recited that are deep, deep in the meaning, deep in meaning, world transcending, connected with, connected with emptiness, the monks are interested to listen to them, lend an ear to them and apply their minds to understand them. They think those teachings should be studied and learned. And having learned those teachings, they question each other about them and investigate them thoroughly, asking, how is, how is this? What is the meaning of this? They disclose to others what is obscure and, cl and clarify what is unclear and dispel their confusion about numerous misunderstandings. This is called the assembly trained in investigation, not in concited talk. And what is the assembly trained in concited talk, not in investigation? Here in this kind of assembly, when those discourses are being spoken by the Sagata are being recited that are deep, deep in meaning, world transcending, con connected with emptiness. The monks are not in they do not think those teachings should be studied and learned. But those, but when those discourses are being recited that are merely poetry composed by poets, beautiful in words and phrases created by outsiders, spoken by their disciples, they are interested to listen to them, lend an ear to them, and apply their minds to understand them. They think those teachings should be studied and learned. And having learned those teachings, they do not question each other about them or investigate them thoroughly, asking, how is this? What is the meaning of this? They do not disclose to others what is obscure and clarify what is unclear, or dispel their confusion about numerous misunderstandings. This is called the assembly trained in concited talk, not in investigation. These monks are the two kinds of assemblies. Of these two kinds of assemblies, the assembly trained in investigation, not in concited talk, is foremost. All right. Thank you, Kodon. So here you guys can see this is the actual reference. So if you'd like to see what the Buddha was saying before this or after this, you can put this into Google. And if you Google that, sometimes you might need to put Buddhism after it. You can actually see the original source, the Translations might be a bit different in terms of the word choices, but you can see what the Buddha was teaching before and after. And then this is the actual reflections that I have shared, but we're not going to read those in class. We're just going to read the words of the Buddha. So I'm going to share some teachings with you, but I won't be able to share the detail as you see here that I've actually written out for you. So that's why the combination of reading and coming to class is so important. So thank you, Kaldon. I appreciate you reading that for us. And I noticed that Alaska also volunteered. If there's others that would like to volunteer for the future chapters, you're welcome to do that. But let me first explain to you this particular chapter. What the Buddha is describing here is two different types of communities of students. Essentially, he's talking about his community, which are trained in investigating the teachings and deeply understanding the words of the Buddha. And then through that investigation, they then discuss these teachings amongst themselves in order to clarify the actual teachings that the Buddha shared. And then he talks about this other type of community where they're just talking about words and 
sounds like poetry. It's just kind of easy on the ears. The mind doesn't really have to do any work to really understand it. They're not really investigating the teachings. And he calls this the assembly that is trained in conceited talk, not in investigation. Because we might think today that during the lifetime of the Buddha, everybody must have studied with the Buddha, right? Because if you were alive during the lifetime of a Buddha, you'd study with an actual Buddha, right? You'd go to a Buddha and say, yeah, I would like to learn with you. I'm not interested in learning with all these other people. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, not everybody understood that he was actually a Buddha. So there were other people besides him that were actually teaching. And they were claiming that it was their teachings that actually lead to enlightenment. So the Buddha himself knew that his teachings were leading to enlightenment, and he was encouraging his students to investigate the teachings. And it's real work to do that. And then not only to investigate the teachings, but then talk about them afterwards to bring them up into your mind so that now they're more readily available to you as you move about the world, you understand the teachings more readily. And he's saying this is a community that's trained in investigation, not in conceited talk. Conceited talk would be like arrogance and pride, right? The ego, putting yourself above others. So this other community that he's talking about, he's saying this is a, a community that's trained in conceited talk because they're words and their phrases and the things that they're talking about, they're just beautiful. They're poetry. They're not really the true path to enlightenment. And the people who are learning those particular teachings aren't truly investigating them and helping to make them clear for each other so that you can progress on the path to enlightenment. It's just this arrogance and this boastfulness and this pride in terms of the way that they're sharing their teachings. It's not the real true path to enlightenment. And then he says here that out of these two kinds of assemblies, the community that's trained in investigation, not in conceited talk, that's the foremost. That's the best community because that's where you're really going to make the real progress to the path to enlightenment is through investigating his teachings, not through just sitting around and speaking in ways that is mere poetry that's easy on the ears, but it doesn't really help you progress towards enlightenment. You're not really doing the work to investigate the teachings and then applying the effort to transform the mind through training. So he's encouraging you to investigate the teachings and then help to ensure that they're not unclear in the mind, that where you have any lack of clarity of his teachings, that you investigate that and you ask questions and you get help with that. That's what he's describing here. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. All right, I'm not seeing any questions here in Facebook or Zoom or YouTube. So I'm gonna go ahead and move on to the next chapter, which is chapter two. I'm not sure, Alasco, if you would like to read chapter two or not, but if you are, you could go ahead and unmute yourself and then go ahead and start reading. Chapter two, one who points out treasure. Ananda, I shall not treat you as the potter treats the raw, damp clay, repeatedly restraining you. I shall speak to you, Ananda, repeatedly guiding you of what to avoid. I shall speak to you, Ananda, the truly dedicated will stand the test. Regard him as one who points out treasure, the wise one who, seeing your faults, guides you of what to avoid. Stay with this sort of teacher. For the one who stays with a teacher of this sort, things get better, not worse. All right. Thank you, Alasco. So here, 
This is the Buddha talking to Ananda. Ananda is considered to be one of the Buddha's closest students. He actually was with the Buddha his entire teaching career for 45 years. In fact, it's Ananda who is credited with reciting the teachings of the Buddha after his death. He's the one who had the deepest memory about what the Buddha actually talked about and what his discourses were. So he was able to remember what the Buddha taught and he was able to describe the teachings and get them written down. So we credit Ananda with having that profound memory. And if it wasn't for him, none of us would actually be really truly understanding the Buddhist teachings because it was him that put forth the effort to remember those teachings for 45 years and then the effort after the death of the Buddha to ensure they get captured in a certain way. So here, not only in this chapter, but in other chapters, you're going to see where the Buddha frequently is talking to Ananda because he's one of his closest students. He's reported to have been maybe his cousin or his brother-in-law. He was a member of the royal family and he left the royal family in order to study with the Buddha. And he ultimately gets to enlightenment after the Buddha died. Even though he studied with the Buddha for 45 years, he doesn't actually get to enlightenment until after the death of the Buddha, most likely because he was attached to the Buddha himself. And oftentimes when somebody dies, that's when you're confronted with this attachment that you have. And oftentimes that's where you let go of your attachment when somebody dies. So here the Buddha is saying to Ananda, I will not treat you as a potter treats the raw damp clay. Because if you have raw damp clay, you have to keep shaping it and shaping it and shaping it and restraining Ananda. The Buddha is saying, I'm not going to restrain you, right? What he's going to do is he's going to guide you of what to avoid. He's going to speak to you. He's going to essentially help him learn the teachings of what it takes to get to enlightenment. And he says, the truly dedicated will stand the test because during the time of working closely with a teacher, a teacher is going to be pointing out to you various things that they're observing about your mind and the things that you're doing in the world. So if you've got ego, the role of a teacher is to say, hey, you've got ego here. Or if you're using wrong speech, the role of a teacher is to help you see that you have wrong speech. Or if you're clinging to your perceptions or if you have ill will, it's the role of the teacher to point that out to you. Now, they should do that very respectfully, very politely, doing that privately, of course. But that's the role of a teacher. That's one of the benefits of having a teacher. Because in the unenlightened state, it's very challenging for you to see your own mind. So a teacher is somebody who would have either been really close to enlightenment or enlightened themselves. Surely here, a Buddha would be enlightened. And they would have already done the work to discover those challenges and those pollutions in their own mind and gotten rid of those pollutions. So now they can see ill will very clearly, or they can see conceit very clearly, or they can see clinging to perceptions or cravings very clearly because they would have seen all those things in their own mind. So they would have needed to eradicate those from their own mind so they can see those things in their student's mind as well. So the role of a teacher is to point these things out to you. But the Buddha is saying that it's only the dedicated that will stand the test because hearing a teacher share with you that you have conceit or that you have ill will or that you have clinging to your perceptions or cravings. This might be really hard for your mind to digest if a, if a teacher is sharing this with you because in the unenlightened state, the mind doesn't like to hear that kind of stuff. It oftentimes rejects 
what is being shared because the mind might have ego and think that you're so perfect. And when a teacher shares with you that you have ego, the ego is going to reject that. So the Buddha is saying the truly dedicated will stand the test, the test of being able to hear a teacher point out things to you that you need to address. And this is what the Buddha is saying is the treasure. The treasure that the teacher is pointing out is, hey, you've got some ill will here that you need to take care of. Hey, you've got some conceit or, hey, you're clinging to your perceptions or, hey, you're not using right speech here. When the teacher is pointing these things out to you, this is the real treasure because the teacher isn't asking for any payment. They're not wanting anything from you. They don't have any expectations from you. Instead, out of loving kindness and compassion, they're just helping you along the path without any expectations of you whatsoever. So this individual, their only interest is to see you get to enlightenment. So if they're willing to take their time, effort, energy, and resources to help you on the path, and they're pointing out treasure to you of things that you can improve, the Buddha is saying to stay with this sort of teacher because things only get better, not worse. Because they're not looking to get anything from you. They don't want anything from you. Their only interest is to see you get to enlightenment. And if they're putting in the time, effort, energy, and resources with dedication and determination and diligence to point out this treasure for you, the least thing you should do is investigate that treasure objectively and see what the teacher is talking about so that then you can actually improve the condition of your mind and actually get to enlightenment. If you reject what a teacher has to say and you don't objectively look at it, then you're actually rendering your teacher useless because there's no use to having a teacher if you're not going to try to understand what it is that they're sharing with you. So as time goes on, you should build up your trust and your confidence in the teacher that they're able to point out this treasure for you in order to help you progress. And as you identify what those treasures are and you improve the condition of the mind, things only get better, not worse. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? All right, I'm not seeing any questions from any of the different methods. We'll move on to chapter three. Would somebody like to read chapter three? Kaudon is offering and volunteering to read chapter three. Go ahead, sir. Rare the Tathagata arises in the world. Monks suppose that this great earth had become one mass of water and a man would throw a ring with a single hole open it. An easterly wind would drive it westward. A westerly wind would drive it eastward. A northerly wind would drive it southward. A southerly wind would drive it northward. There was a blind turtle which would come to the surface once every hundred years. What do you think, monks? Would that blind turtle coming to the surface once every hundred years insert its neck into that ring with a simple hole? It would be very venerable, sir, that the blind turtle coming to the surface So two monks, it's rare that one obtains the human state. Rare that the Tathagata, Tathagata and Arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, arises in the world. Rare that the teachings are and discipline proclaimed by the Tathagata shines in the world. You have obtained that human state, monks. A Tathagata, an Arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, has arisen in the world. The teachings and discipline 
proclaimed by the Tasagata shrines in the world. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discount, this is discontendance, an effort should be made to understand. This is the cause of discontendance, an effort should be made to understand. This is the elimination of discontentness, an effort should be made to understand. This is the way leading to the elimination of discontentness. All right. Thank you, sir. Let me help you guys understand this particular chapter. Here, a Tathagata is the actual Buddha. He tends to refer to himself as the Tathagata. The word Tathagata means the one who discovers the truth or one who shares the truth. That's what a Tathagata is. He very rarely, if ever, referred to himself as a Buddha. He most frequently referred to himself as the Tathagata, the one who's discovered the truth or the one who shares the truth. And what he's sharing here is that it's very rare for somebody to obtain the human state. And it's very rare for a Buddha or a Tathagata to arise in the world. And if these two things are happening at the same time and you happen to be alive, this is the best opportunity for you to get to enlightenment. Because in the human state, this is the ideal time for you to actually get to enlightenment because you experience things like painful feelings. You experience anger and sadness and frustration and irritation and jealousy, resentment, and all these other discontent feelings. This can oftentimes be built-in motivation and encouragement, enthusiasm to actually get to enlightenment because you're not interested in experiencing those painful feelings. So this can actually motivate you and propel you towards understanding the path to enlightenment and actually getting to enlightenment. Well, if you're alive in the human state at the same time as a Buddha or a Tathagata, this Buddha is going to have deep, deep wisdom about how to attain enlightenment. So if you're studying with an actual Buddha, they're going to know the path to enlightenment very clearly with the lights along the side of the path, having illuminated this path and penetrating words of wisdom to be able to help you understand the path to enlightenment. So you will be able to more readily make your way to enlightenment during the lifetime of a Buddha. So the Buddha equates this rarity of a Buddha arising and you being in the human state during that time as if the entire world is flooded and there's a, a ring that is floating on the surface of the earth. And now this blind sea turtle comes up once every 100 years. The Buddha is saying, what's the likelihood of this blind sea turtle putting his head through this ring once every hundred years. He's saying this is how rare it is that one obtains the human state. It's so rare that not only that you obtain a human state, that you're alive during the lifetime of a Buddha, a perfectly enlightened one. And then he says, because of this, you should make an effort to understand this is discontentedness. This is the cause of discontentedness. This is the elimination. And this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. What he's doing here is he's pointing to the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths is where you can have the breakthrough of understanding what's truly causing your discontent feelings, like anger and frustration in others. Because oftentimes in the unenlightened state, we blame other people for our discontent feelings. We think somebody else is making us angry, or you are annoying me, or you are frustrating me, or you know that situation is annoying me, You know your music is annoying me. It's actually not that at all. 
What it is, is it's your own mind with craving, desire, attachment that is longing and yearning. And because of that craving, desire, attachment, your mind is becoming discontent. So when you have this breakthrough to understanding the Four Noble Truths, you can understand the problem, which is discontentedness, the cause of the problem, which is craving, desire, attachment, the elimination of the problem, which is the elimination of craving, desire, attachment, and the way forward leading to the elimination of discontentedness, which is the Eightfold Path. It's putting this together that is ultimately going to help you get to enlightenment. So when you're in the human state and you have the opportunity to study with the Buddha, this is the very best thing that could ever happen in your life. And the Buddha is saying, make an effort to understand the Four Noble Truths. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Okay, so Kaldun is asking, how is it rare in the human state? Well, there's these five realms of existence. There's hell, the animal realm, the afflicted spirits realm, the human realm, and the heavenly realm. The lower realms of hell, animal, and afflicted spirits, these are the lower realms. In those realms, you actually can't get to enlightenment. And once you're in those realms, it's very challenging to get out of them. It's described by the Buddha like a prison. Because if you are an animal, for example, say you were a lion, it's very hard for you to get to the human state because you're going around constantly killing. You're stealing from other beings in order to eat. You're having sexual misconduct, for example. So you're not practicing the teachings very closely as an animal because these natural laws of existence affect you whether you understand these teachings or not. So as an animal, you'll be constantly reborn over and over and over and over again, many, 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 many lives before you ever get a chance to come to the human state. So once you actually get to the human state, this is the ideal place for you to be able to now get to enlightenment because humans and heavenly beings can get to enlightenment. But even in the heavenly realm, that's not desirable. That's not what you would aspire for because in the heavenly realm, it's not permanent. It's an impermanent existence. And those beings are experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings. And when you're experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, you tend to be very complacent and you're not actively learning and practicing in order to get to enlightenment. But here in the human realm, it's very different than the lower realms because we're actually able to get to enlightenment. And it's very different than the heavenly realm because we experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. So we have built-in motivation to actually get to enlightenment. And this is what the path to enlightenment is all about, is, is training the mind to become a better and better human being. So it's very rare that you have enough wholesome decisions in those lower realms that produce the wholesome gamma that allows you to actually get to the human realm. And once you're here, this is the ideal time for you to actually make your way to enlightenment. Any other questions on this particular chapter? I'm not seeing any questions on YouTube or Facebook either. So we'll go ahead and move to the next chapter, which is chapter four. I think Alaska said he would like to read this chapter. Chapter 4. The perfectly enlightened one means the past, future, or at present are all fully awakened to the Four Noble Truths. Monk, whenever Araha, perfectly enlightened one in the past, fully awakened to things as they really are, all fully awakened to the Four Noble Truths as they really are. 
whatever arahant, perfectly enlightened one, in the future will fully awaken to things as they really are. All will fully awaken to the Four Noble Truths as they really are. Whatever arahant, perfectly enlightened one, at present, are fully awakened to things as they really are. All are fully awakened to the Four Noble Truths as they really are. What for? The noble truth of discontentedness, the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness, the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Therefore, Mark, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. All right. Thank you, Alaska. <laughs> what the Buddha is explaining here is that any enlightened beings or any Buddhas that arise in the world and awaken to enlightenment, they're all going to need to be fully wise and awakened to the Four Noble Truths. It's the Four Noble Truths which is the very beginning of the path to enlightenment. So an Arahant is an enlightened being. There's four stages of enlightenment. Stream entry, once returner, non-returner, and Arahant. It's not until the mind is in the stage of an Arahant where you've eliminated all the ten fetters that the mind is actually enlightened. And now this person is an enlightened being. They're an Arahant. A perfectly enlightened one, a Buddha, is somebody who is an Arahant, but they've done it by themselves. There's three criteria that make a Buddha a Buddha. They independently awaken to enlightenment on their own without any teachers or any guides. They then dedicate the rest of their life to sharing the teachings that led to their enlightenment, and countless people get to enlightenment during their lifetime. And then the third criteria is that they preserve the teachings in such a way that after their death, countless more people actually get to enlightenment. So Gautama Buddha is a Buddha, or he was a Buddha. He awakened to enlightenment by himself without any teachers. He dedicated the rest of his life to sharing his teachings and helping countless people actually get to enlightenment. And then he preserved the teachings in such a way that countless more people could get to enlightenment after his death. And what he's saying here is any Buddha in the past, any current Buddha or any Buddha in the future is going to awaken to these Four Noble Truths and have the wisdom of these Four Noble Truths. And this is the same for any Arahants, any enlightened beings. So if you're interested in getting to enlightenment, you would need to know the Four Noble Truths very detailed inside and out because that's what's actually going to help propel you and really get you started on the path to enlightenment. If you were going to take a hike in the woods or in the forest, there's a trail marker typically at the beginning of a trail. And it's gonna say, you know, this trail is two miles long. You know, you walk for a while, you go down, you cross a stream, then you go back up and then you circle back around maybe to the parking lot. And it's gonna be this trail marker and kind of explaining to you what this trail is that you're going to encounter along this journey on this hike. Well, the Four Noble Truths is essentially doing that for you. When you learn the Four Noble Truths in four simple statements, the Buddha is explaining the problem, the cause of the problem, the elimination of the problem, and the way leading to the complete elimination of the problem. It's like this trail marker. It's giving you kind of a glimpse 
of the path to enlightenment so that you understand what you're going to encounter along this path. So anybody who gets to enlightenment and surely a perfectly enlightened one, a Buddha, is going to know the Four Noble Truths inside and out, backwards and forwards. So he's saying here, an effort should be made to understand these if you're interested to get to enlightenment. And today in chapter seven, we're gonna be studying the words of the Buddha around the Four Noble Truths. And if you've already studied the group learning program with me, then you've seen the Four Noble Truths that I share there, but now we're gonna be discussing them with the words of the Buddha. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions on this chapter. So let's move to the next one, which is chapter five. Kadon, would you like to read that chapter? The perfectly enlightened one. Monks, there are these four noble truths. What for? The noble truth of discontentness. The noble truth of the cause of discontentness. The noble truth of the elimination of discontentness. The noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentness. It's because he has fully awakened to these four noble truths as they, as they really are that the Tathagata is called the Arahan, the perfectly enlightened one. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand. This is discontentness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentness. Perfect. Thank you, sir. So here, once again, the Buddha is just reinforcing the Four Noble Truths. You're going to see this in many, many chapters throughout this book series where the Buddha is constantly pointing to the Four Noble Truths to remind you that that's where the path starts, is understanding and practicing the Four Noble Truths. Remember, it's that trail marker at the beginning of the path to enlightenment. You would need to understand this trail marker before you go off on this journey. Otherwise, you're going to encounter things that you don't understand on this hike, on this journey of this path. So it's the Four Noble Truths that is giving you that at the very beginning of embarking on this journey on the path to enlightenment. So it's very important that you learn the Four Noble Truths and you understand them in detail as part of your journey on the path to enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? All right, I'm not seeing any questions that are coming in here, either by raising your hand in Zoom or through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom comment section. So we'll go ahead and move on to chapter six. Chapter six, encourage, settle, and establish for making the breakthrough to the four noble truths. Monks, those for whom you have compassion and who think you should be heeded, whether friends or colleagues, relatives or kinsmen, these you should encourage, settle, and establish for making the breakthrough to the four noble truths as they really are. What for? The noble truth of discontentedness, the noble truth of cause of discontentedness, the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Those for whom you have compassion and who think you should be needed, whether friends or colleagues, relatives or kinsmen, these you should encourage, settle, and establish for making the breakthrough to these four noble truths as they really are. Therefore, among an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand 
This is the elimination of disinventiveness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of disinventiveness. All right. Thank you, sir. So here, the Buddha is once again pointing to the Four Noble Truths and explaining how it's important to have this breakthrough. But what he's adding to this is he's saying if there's any people in your life that you have compassion for, which compassion is concern for their misfortune, and they will heed your advice, then he's saying that you should make an effort to encourage them, settle them, and establish them in the Four Noble Truths. So if your mom is angry or your brothers or sisters or other people around you are having problems and struggles in their life, and you understand that it's the Four Noble Truths that they don't understand and there's maybe other wisdom that you know that could be helpful for them, the Buddha is saying that you might decide to make an effort to help them to learn this path to enlightenment. There's never a time where he obligates you or requires you to share the teachings with other people, but you might actually find that you would like to share the teachings, even to a beginning amount, just to help somebody understand a little bit of struggles or challenges that they're having in life. And where you have that situation, you need to be very selective about how you choose to share the teachings. You're not interested in going on the street corner, hitting a drum and holding up signs and trying to profess to everybody to learn the teachings of the Buddha. And you're not interested in trying to force or pressure people to learn the teachings. But if mom is talking to you or brother or sister or somebody else is talking to you and you hear them talking about certain things they're angry at or frustrated at, you might say, mom, would you like to understand why your mind is experiencing anger? And mom might say, sure, what is it? And then you can actually explain the affordable truths to her because she has an open mind. But mom might also say, no, I'm not interested. I already know why I'm angry. It's your dad, right? He's not doing what I want him to do. <laughs> These kind of things, right? And if she says no, then you need to be comfortable with that. Because if you have a craving, desire, attachment to share these teachings with mom or brother or sister, and then they say, no, they're not interested, you're going to be discontent. So if you have compassion for your friends, your colleagues, your relatives, your kinsmen, or anyone else like that, you might check in with them first to see if they're open to understanding. And then if they have an open mind, you might share a video with them. You might share a book with them. You might try to explain it yourself if you can. And then this will help them to have this breakthrough to understanding that they're causing their own discontentedness. But if they say no, be prepared for that and just know that, okay, then you're not going to share that with them. And if you've asked them two or three times and every single time they say no, then you probably shouldn't ask them anymore. Just step away, just back away. Because if you keep persisting and you keep putting pressure and trying to force them to learn, this is just your own craving, desire, attachment, and it's gonna turn people away from the path to enlightenment. So we can try to establish people and encourage people to learn and have this breakthrough, the Four Noble Truths, but it should be without craving, desire, attachment, which means you wouldn't be pressuring or forcing them. You would be inviting them you know, would you like to know or are you interested to know why you're experiencing stress? It's craving, desire, attachment. Are you interested to know why you're having this anxiety? It's always going to be craving, desire, attachment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? All right, I'm not seeing any questions here. So let's move on to chapter seven, which is the words of the Buddha of the Four Noble Truths. Monks, there are these Four Noble Truths. What for? The noble truth of discontentness. 
the noble truth of the cause of discontentness. The noble truth of the elimination of the of discontentness. The noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentness. And what monks is the noble truth of discontentness? It should be said the five aggregate subject to clinging, that is the form aggregate subject to clinging. The feeling aggregate subject to clinging, the perception aggregate subject to clinging. The volutional formation aggregate subject to clinging, the consciousness aggregate subject to clinging. This is this is called the noble truth of discontentness. And what monks is the noble truth of the cause of discontentness? It is the craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied accompanied by excitement and desire. Seeking excitement here and there, that is craving for sensual pleasure, craving for existence, craving for extermination. This is called the noble truth of the cause of discontentness. And what monks is the noble truth of the elimination of discontentness? It is the remainderless fading away and elimination of the same craving, the giving up and letting go of it, freedom from it, non-reliance on it. This is called the noble truth of the elimination of discontentness. And what most is the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentness? It is this noble eightfold path that is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is called the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentness. These monks are the four noble truths. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand. This is discontentness. An effort should be made to understand. This is the cause of discontentness. An effort should be made to understand. This is the elimination of discontentness. An effort should be made to understand. This is the way leading to the elimination of discontentness. All right. Thank you, sir. So I'm going to start explaining this chapter where we actually left off, which is this last paragraph. Notice that the Buddha keeps saying that this effort should be made to understand, right? He's been saying this in multiple teachings. So to learn and practice this path to enlightenment, again, it's not just for the casual observer. It's for the truly dedicated, the truly committed, because you're going to need to have effort to apply effort to investigate the teachings and try to understand them so that then you can practice them. You're not going to be able to just kind of slip your way into enlightenment. It's not going to just trip over enlightenment and fall into enlightenment. It's going to be effort to actually learn and practice and do this real work to actually get to enlightenment. So with the Buddha saying here repeatedly multiple times to make this effort to understand enlightenment, Let's now make this effort to understand these Four Noble Truths because that's what he's encouraging us to do in multiple situations is to understand the Four Noble Truths and make an effort to do that. So let's look at the First Noble Truth because during the group learning program and in the first volume of the book, 
I summarize the Four Noble Truths in a way that helps a beginning practitioner get started with understanding the Four Noble Truths. But once you understand it there, and maybe you've been working with that for a year or so, it ultimately is helpful for you to learn the Four Noble Truths in the way that the Buddha explains them. You would need to understand them in the way that the Buddha explains them in order to get to enlightenment because he's sharing things with you here in the Four Noble Truths that you're gonna need in order to get to enlightenment. Where the Four Noble Truths that I share with you is more of a summarized version just to get you started on the path to enlightenment. And now later, after you've already studied those in depth, it's important that you now study the words of the Buddha related to the Four Noble Truths, which is in the first volume for you to see, but I don't usually share it in the group learning program. And when you're first getting started, I put it in the book, but I don't teach it until you get here. Because now you're going to need to understand the Four Noble Truths in the way that the Buddha explains it. During his lifetime, things were understood a bit more and he could explain the Four Noble Truths from the very beginning. But in order for you to understand these Four Noble Truths, there needs to be some prior learning and prior understanding for you to be able to get to this understanding that he's explaining. So let me first help you understand what is the five aggregates. This is something that the average person isn't going to understand today, but with a teacher helping you to understand it, then you can understand it. What the Buddha describes as the five aggregates is these five individual things that make you a human being. Essentially, it makes a being a being. There's five things. There's form, feeling, perceptions, volitional formations, which are just choices and decisions, and then there's consciousness or the mind. So you can investigate this and independently verify it for yourself that yes, you have physical form. That's the first aggregate, you have physical form. The second aggregate is feelings, that you have pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. This is happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. That's pleasant feelings. Sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, these are painful feelings. And then there's neither painful nor pleasant, which is like dissatisfying or uncomfortable, like shyness. It's not pleasant, it's not painful. Or if somebody you didn't know sat close to you on public transportation and your body and their body was touching. It's not pleasant, it's not painful, it's neither painful nor pleasant. So an unenlightened being is going to experience these feelings. This is the feeling aggregate. Then there's the perception aggregate. The perception aggregate is how you view the world. Certain beliefs, certain opinions, certain views that you have of the world, certain assumptions that you have, they may or may not actually be true. So the way that you perceive the world around you is your perceptions. You have a certain perception, certain opinions, certain views about the world around you. Then there's volitional formations. This is just another word for choices and decisions. This is how you make choices and decisions. That's one of the aggregates. And then there's consciousness, which is the mind. So you have all five of these aggregates, and this is what makes a living being a living being. But you can take something like a tree, and you can see that they don't have the five aggregates. While we might consider a tree to be alive, and we might talk about it as being alive, 
It's not a living being. It's not a human being. It's not an animal. Yes, it has physical form, which is the first aggregate, but it doesn't have feelings. It doesn't have perceptions. It doesn't have choices and decisions or volitional formations, and it doesn't have a mind. So a tree can't make a choice or decision to pick itself up, walk down the street and replant itself. But a human being or an animal or something like this, they can actually do that because they have all five aggregates. A tree doesn't have a perception. The tree doesn't look out at the world and like, you know, I kind of don't like uh, this type of tree. I don't like this kind of tree or I kind of don't like it when it's too windy. You know, the tree doesn't have certain perceptions about the world around it. So what the Buddha is explaining here is discontentedness is clinging to these five aggregates that if you cling to these things, then there's going to be discontentedness. So let's take the first one, the physical form of the body. If you cling to this physical form and you crave it, if you hold on to it and cling it, and you think that this physical body needs to stay permanently youthful, when you see a wrinkle or when you see some gray hair come into your hair, you're gonna feel discontent. You might feel frustrated or annoyed or irritated or you might be disappointed and feeling like you're getting old and run down. So if you're clinging to this physical form, then there's going to be discontentedness. Or if you're clinging to feelings like pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. If you cling to these feelings, then your mind's going to be discontent. Or if you have certain perceptions about the world and the way that you feel that the world functions and you have certain beliefs and opinions about the world, some of these things are true, some of these things are false. And if you continue to cling to your perceptions, which is essentially like making an assumption, if you assume and you cling to this assumption about the world, you're going to experience this discontentedness in the mind because you're clinging to this perception of how things are in the world rather than looking for the truth and truly figuring out how the world functions. Or if you have certain choices and decisions or volitional formations and you cling to those choices, there's going to be discontentedness. So if you are thinking about taking a trip six months from now, and now you make the plan to go on this trip and you're clinging to this plan, and then you get really close to going away on this trip, and now something like COVID comes, and now you can't go on the trip because the planes aren't moving, nobody's flying anywhere. You're gonna feel angry or sad or frustrated when you can't take that trip because you were clinging to this decision, you were holding on to a decision or any other thing in your life, right? If you cling to any particular decisions and now all the things have changed and now because of change or impermanence, the decision can't be executed the way that you wanted, now you're gonna experience discontentedness as a result. Or if you cling to this mind and wanting the mind to be a certain way or having a certain self-identity of who you think you are, then the mind's gonna experience discontentedness. So it's the five aggregates subject to clinging that the Buddha calls discontentedness, but that when you cling to these five aggregates, there's going to be discontentedness in the mind. And now he says, well, what's the cause of discontentedness? What's causing all of this? Well, it's craving. Craving is this mental longing and strong eagerness. 
where clinging is holding on to something tightly. So craving is the longing and yearning for something. We call this craving or desire, where clinging is holding on to this thing and wanting it to be permanent. These are two different things, where in the group learning program, I explain it all as one thing, but in reality, the craving is the longing and yearning. The clinging is the holding on to it. And the Buddha is saying craving, which leads to renewed existence. Because as long as you're craving and longing and yearning, then you're going to experience rebirth. Accompanied by excitement and desire. As long as you have craving in the mind, if you get the objects of your affection and what you want, you're going to get pleasant feelings. You're going to get excitement. You're going to get this exhilaration, this thrill, this euphoria. But then if you don't get what you want, you're going to experience painful feelings like anger or sadness or frustration or others. So this pleasant feelings and painful feelings are going to come into the mind when there's craving. If there's craving, then the mind's going to be longing and yearning, wanting pleasant feelings. And when you get the objects of your affection of what you're craving and longing and yearning for, you're going to get those pleasant feelings. But because your inner feelings are based on craving, it's only a matter of time before those conditions change that now you're going to experience painful feelings. So, for example, if you're craving to see sunshine and when it's sunny outside, you're really happy and excited. Well, it's only a matter of time before that sunshine changes and now it's raining or it's snowing or it's windy. So if you're only happy when it's sunny outside, then that's basing your inner feelings on the condition that it's sunny outside. And since that condition is not permanent, it's impermanent, then that means your feeling of happiness is impermanent as well because you've based your inner feelings on this impermanent condition of it being sunny outside. So now when it rains, now you're angry or you're sad or you're frustrated. And your mind is doing this not just with the weather, but it's doing it with other things too. If you get that brand new pair of shoes that you wanted, okay, the mind's happy, excited, elated. But then if you go to the store and they don't have your shoes, maybe you're angry, you're sad, or you're frustrated. Or maybe your favorite restaurant. You're going to this restaurant because you want this delicious piece of chocolate cake. And if you get this piece of chocolate cake, you get happy, excited, elated. But if they run out of the chocolate cake, now you're angry or you're frustrated. And it's all because of craving. This is the cause of discontent feelings. And you can see this if you look over the course of your life, you can see anytime your mind has been discontent, it's always because of craving, desire, attachment. And it's because the mind is seeking excitement here and there. That's what the Buddha is saying here. The mind is longing and yearning. It's wanting these pleasant feelings. It's yearning for excitement and thrill and euphoria. And as long as you're chasing after these excitement, these pleasant feelings, and you're basing it on some condition, it's only a matter of time before your mind now experiences painful feelings because it's now going to shift. It's going to no longer get that condition. So the unenlightened mind thinks that the next new shiny object around the corner is going to bring you lasting satisfaction. But in reality, what you realize is it's going to give you temporary pleasant feelings. But because you based your feelings on those temporary condition of getting this next new shiny object, it's only a matter of time before that no longer exists. And now you're going to get painful feelings. So you're opening yourself up as long as you're chasing with craving, desire, attachment for this excitement. You're opening yourself up 
for discontentedness. And what the Buddha is saying here is that the mind is craving sensual pleasures. This is the mind longing and yearning through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the bodily contact in the mind. These six sense bases, the mind is longing and yearning through these sense bases for sensual pleasures. You're trying to please the mind through the sense bases. You want to see agreeable things. You want to hear agreeable things. You want to smell agreeable things. You want to taste agreeable things. You want agreeable things to be in contact with the body. You want certain things in the mind to be agreeable all the time. So now, if you get what you agree with, then you get pleasant feelings. But as soon as you meet disagreeable things through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, bodily contact, or the mind, when you experience this disagreeable contact, now the mind experiences painful feelings because of the craving and longing through these sense bases. And some of the things that the mind craves is craving for existence, where you're craving to exist in this world. You want to exist in this world. So therefore, when you get close to death, you don't want to let go of this world because you're craving existence. Or the opposite side of that is craving extermination, where you're craving to die. This is somebody who might be considering suicide. So the mind's on the opposite sides here, is it's craving to exist in the world, or it's craving to die and it thinks everything's so miserable and let's get out of here. But what you're learning on the path to enlightenment is how to bring the mind to the middle. And that's what the Buddha is sharing with you on the path to enlightenment is how to not live on these two sides of extremes where you're constantly trying to please the senses because it's only going to lead to discontentedness. He says the way to eliminate discontentedness is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. If you eliminate craving, desire, attachment and you give it up and let go of it and you gain this freedom and non-reliance on this craving, then you can get to liberation where the mind is liberated because your mind isn't free of strong feelings. Your mind isn't free when you go outside and you see it's sunny outside and you get so excited and then it rains and now you get sad and angry and frustrated. You're not free. Essentially, the weather just changes and you're discontent. You're frustrated and annoyed. Your mind is burdened, right? It's almost like a slave being trapped, right? You're trapped into this craving. And now you have to feel these feelings of painful feelings where you can actually eliminate the cravings, desires, attachments, where you can let go of the craving, desire, attachments and get free and not rely on these craving desire attachments and now the mind can get freedom from strong feelings it can get to liberation it can get to peace it can get to joy it can get to this enlightened mental state because you wake up and it's sunny outside lovely it's sunny outside we'll go outside and have some fun let me go take a shower you go take a shower and you come out and it's like oh it's raining outside okay well it's raining outside maybe i'll go to the movies or i'll stay home and read a book but you're not angry you're still peaceful and you're still joyful because you recognize that the weather changing is just impermanence. As long as you're craving for there to be permanent sunshine, then you're going to be discontent. So you can completely transform the mind and get liberated when you eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And it's this path to enlightenment, the breathing, mindfulness, meditation, and generosity that helps you do that. But more fully, the Buddha is explaining the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness is the Eightfold Path, 
right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. This is what's going to lead you to the elimination of discontentedness. This is the training. This is your life practice. This is the core teaching of the Buddha that everything else plugs into. So if you can understand and practice the Eightfold Path, which the Four Noble Truths is the very first step, which is right view. If you can understand and have this breakthrough to understanding the cause and the elimination of discontentedness, and then you can put together all the other pieces of the Eightfold Path and dialing that in closer and closer, now you can see that your mind can actually get to this peacefulness and to this joy, because now you're training the mind and you see the discontentedness gradually diminishing, and ultimately, you can go one year, two years, three years, and longer where you haven't experienced any discontent feelings whatsoever, and you know that the mind is enlightened, and it's the Eightfold Path that has led you to that because you trained your mind in this Eightfold Path. What questions do you guys have on the words of the Buddha related to the Four Noble Truths? Okay, it doesn't look like we have any questions on Facebook or YouTube. And Kaudon says... No questions. Well explained. Okay, sir. So let's go to chapter 8. And here you can see I've explained it very thoroughly for you guys. So you can read that. And now we'll go to this chapter, The Two-Eyed Person. Chapter 8, The Two-Eyed Person. Monk, there are these three kinds of persons found existing in the world. What three? The blind person, the one-eyed person, and the two-eyed person. And what, monks, is the blind person? Here, some person lacks the kind of eye with which one can acquire wealth, not yet acquired, and increase wealth already acquired. And he also lacks the kind of eye with which one can know wholesome and unwholesome qualities, blameworthy and blameless qualities, inferior and superior qualities, dark and bright qualities with their counterparts, this is called the blind person. And what is the one-eyed person? Here, some person has the kind of eye with which one can acquire wealth not yet acquired and increase wealth already acquired. But he lacks the kind of eye with which one can know wholesome and unwholesome qualities, blameworthy and blameless qualities, inferior and superior qualities, dark and bright qualities with their counterparts. This is called the one-eyed person. And what is the two-eyed person? Here, some person has the kind of eye with which one can acquire wealth not yet acquired and increase wealth already acquired. And he also has the kind of eye with which one can know wholesome and unwholesome qualities, blameworthy and blameless qualities, inferior and superior qualities, dark and bright qualities with their counterparts. This is called the two-eyed person. These monks are the three kinds of persons existing in the world. And how much does a monk have a sense of eye? Here, a monk understands as it really is. This is discontentedness. A monk understands as it really is. This is the cause of discontentedness. A monk understands as it really is. This is the elimination of discontentedness. A monk understands as it really is. This is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. It is in this way that a month has to All right. Thank you, Alasco. 
So here the Buddha is explaining some different qualities. He's explaining one quality of being able to acquire wealth. The other quality is being able to understand wholesome and unwholesome things. And then he talks about this individual who has attentive eyes that understands the Four Noble Truths. Essentially, what you would like to do is you'd like to acquire all these abilities. You would like to be able to you know, make an income where you can so you can sustain your life. You'd like to be able to have the ability to know wholesome and unwholesome things because then you'll be able to make wise decisions. And you would like to also know the Four Noble Truths so that you understand the cause of discontentedness and how to eliminate it. That's what he's talking about here with the monks, the ordained practitioners. So here he's just describing this. You don't have to pick one or the other. You can acquire all of these things where you're acquiring the ability to make an income. You're acquiring the ability to understand wholesome and unwholesome aspects of life. It's the path to enlightenment that's going to help you do that and understand the Four Noble Truths and how to have this breakthrough where you can see with clarity what is the cause of discontentedness and the elimination and how to actually go forward in life to eliminate discontentedness. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Let's see. Not seeing anything on YouTube or Facebook. And okay, Kaldon, go ahead. You can ask your question if you'd like to open up your mic and ask. Oh, okay. So he's going to ask it here in the comment section. His question is, will enlightenment help in building wealth and getting income? The answer is the path to enlightenment itself is going to help you to understand how to eliminate discontentedness, right? And in order to eliminate discontentedness, you would need to understand things like right intention, right speech, and right action. And what this is going to do for you, among all the other teachings, is it's going to help you to create harmony in your relationships, both your personal and professional relationships. And the way that you actually make money, and the way that somebody can acquire wealth and income, is by having wholesome relationships, by having harmonious relationships. Because in order for you to make money and an income, you need to have people that trust you. You need to have friends. You need to have people that can rely on you, people that are willing to do business with you. If you are an ornery, nasty, vindictive, negative, bitter, and hostile person, people aren't going to be interested in doing business with you and giving you money or giving you a job. So the answer to your question is yes, getting to enlightenment is surely going to help you to acquire more income. But the way that you're accomplishing that is through training your mind and eradicating pollution so that now you can have right intention, right speech, and right action, develop better and better personal and professional relationships. And now when you're harmonious with other people, people will be willing to give you a job or do business with you as a business person and things like this. So you would definitely be able to be successful in any kind of business if you chose to be a business person. As you get to enlightenment, you'll actually be more and more successful in business. And some of the students that have been studying with me for a few years, they've actually experienced this, where before they were learning the path to enlightenment, Maybe they were unemployed or they didn't feel like going out into the workforce or things like this. But as they trained their mind and got closer and closer to enlightenment, they've now gone off into the world and they've gotten jobs. And now they're being very successful in their jobs because what a job comes down to, what a livelihood comes down to is interacting with people. And if you are practicing right intention, right speech, right action and right livelihood, understanding this natural law of gamma very, very closely, then you're going to be very successful in any kind of 
occupation or if you choose to open your own business or do something else in life, you'll be very successful at that. And you'll be doing that with less and less discontentedness. And once the mind is enlightened, you won't have any discontentedness whatsoever. So your mind will be focused and concentrated with clarity and you'll have memory to be able to perform whatever occupation you've chosen and you'll be very proficient at it. So you should be able to be very successful in your work life. Any other questions on this particular chapter? Let me check Facebook and YouTube one more time. All right, I'm not seeing anything there. So let's move to the next chapter, which is chapter nine. Wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome comradeship. On one occasion, great king, I was living among the Sakyans, where there is a town of the Sakyans named Nicaragua. Then the monk Ananda approached me, paid homage, respect to me, sat down to one side and said, Venerable sir, this is half of the holy life, that is wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome comradeship. When this was said, great king, I told the monk Ananda, not so Ananda, not so Ananda. This is the entire holy life, Ananda. That is wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome comradeship. When a monk has a wholesome friend, wholesome companion, a wholesome comrade, it's to be predicted that he will develop and cultivate the noble eightfold path. All right, thank you, Kaldon. So here, the Buddha is talking about the importance of cultivating wholesome friendships around you, wholesome associates. Because if you had negative influences around you, it would be very challenging for you to get to enlightenment. If you are trying to practice right speech, for example, but you have people around you that are constantly using profanity or they're constantly rude and vindictive and jealous and resentful, your mind's going to have a tendency to move in that direction. So what the Buddha is saying here is, cultivate relationships around you where people are wholesome. And if you're cultivating relationships like that, then you will find that you'll have a better journey towards enlightenment. And one of the ways that people will cultivate these relationships is within the community of practitioners that they're part of, because you're going to be meeting other people in this online community and also in person. If you come to any of the courses or retreats that I teach in person, you're going to be meeting different people. And these people that you're meeting, they're into wholesome things because they're interested in the path to enlightenment. So this is one of the ways that you can improve the quality of your life is ensure you have wholesome friends and wholesome associates around you. And the way that you can kind of look at that without judging people is look at the five precepts that if there's people who are taking substances that cause heedlessness, if they're lying, if they're having sexual misconduct, if they're stealing, if they're killing other beings, this would be unwise to associate with people like this. It's not that you're judging those people or looking down on them, but if they're doing those things in their life, then it's going to cause them difficulties, so therefore it's going to cause you difficulties. So even though other people might not be studying the five precepts and they don't understand the Buddhist teachings about the five precepts, these type of teachings show up in Christian teachings, Hindu teachings, Muslim teachings, and other places where people are learning not to take substances that cause heedlessness, not to lie, not to have sexual misconduct, not to steal, and not to kill. And if you're 
around people that are like this, then there's a good chance that they're into wholesome things. So you can use the five precepts that you understand as part of the Buddhist teachings as kind of like a criteria of ensuring that the people that you're around are wholesome. And then you can see that you'll find that as you develop these relationships, it'll be more easy for you to cultivate your mind because you're around wholesome people who are also interested in improving their life as well, rather than having lots of negative influences around you. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? All right, I'm not seeing any questions on this chapter, so we'll go to the last chapter for today, which is chapter 10. Chapter 10, the entire whole life is wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome comradeship. And how, Ananda, does a monk who has a wholesome friend, a wholesome companion, a wholesome comrade develop and call no playful path? Here, Ananda, a monk develops right view, which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, maturing and relief. He develops right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feeling, and elimination, maturing and relief. It is in this way. Ananda, that a monk who has a wholesome friend, a wholesome companion, a wholesome comrade, develops and cultivates the Noble Eightfold Path. By the following method too, Ananda, it may be understood how the entire holy life is wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome comradeship, are relying upon me as a wholesome friend. Ananda, being subject to birth, a free from birth. Being subject to aging, a free from aging. Being subject to illness, a free from illness. Being subject to death, a free from death. Being subject to sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. Are free from sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair by this method. Ananda, it may be understood how the whole, how the entire holy life is wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, and wholesome comradeship. All right. Thank you, Alasco. So here, this is a continuation of what we've already seen, where the Buddha is encouraging you to develop wholesome friends in your life. And I've given you a suggestion on how to do that with the five precepts. Because as you do, you're going to be able to make your way more readily to enlightenment. And what he's describing here is that beings who are subject to birth, sickness, aging, and death, as well as experiencing these discontent feelings like sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair, by you cultivating the Eightfold Path, you're going to be able to get free from that. And the way you get free from that is by getting to enlightenment. And what gets you to enlightenment is the Eightfold Path. And the best way to cultivate the Eightfold Path is to ensure you have wholesome friends around you. So he's kind of showing you how to build up your practice. That through the Eightfold Path, you learn and practice the Eightfold Path, but ensure that you don't have negative influences around you. If you have a friend that you've been holding on to for 20 years or 30 years, but you know they're into a whole lot of unwholesome things, and perhaps if you continue to be around that person, it could negatively affect you in your life, it would be best to move on from that relationship, not to judge that person or look down on them. In your mind, it's wonderful to wish them well, 
and think nothing but having concern for their misfortune and having an interest in seeing them be well. This is loving kindness and compassion. But as long as you hold on to negative and hostile and harsh and bitter relationships, you're going to be dragged down into that. So in some situations, you're going to need to choose to let go of relationships and move on. In certain relationships that you're in now, you might choose to work on those and improve those. And then as you're learning this path, there might be new relationships that you actually create where now you're not attached to them, they're not attached to you, and you can now create a much better life for yourself by surrounding yourself with people who are into wholesome things. Because oftentimes when our mind is holding on to the past, we might hold on to relationships without realizing that it's really best if we just move on. So you're going to find that there's some relationships that you choose to move on from, some that you choose to repair, and they need to do some work as well. And then there's new relationships that you might forge as you go forward in life. What questions do you guys have on this particular chapter? All right, I'm not seeing any questions on this chapter. So what I'll do then is just end off by thanking all of you guys for attending today's class, whether you're attending live on one of the places that we're streaming to or whether you're in Zoom or whether you're watching this on the replay because learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha is the very best thing you could ever do for yourself, those close to you, and all of humanity because as you're training your mind, it's only going to improve the way that you function in the world, which means your life's going to get better. The life of the people around you is going to get better because you're not going to be causing harm. And then slowly but surely, all of humanity is getting better because more and more beings are getting to enlightenment and we're experiencing more peace and more joy in the world. So I always admire and respect people who are dedicated and determined and diligent to learning and practicing these teachings. Next week in this same program, we're going to be studying the next 10 chapters. So chapters 11 through 20. And as I mentioned, you can read those beforehand and or after, and you can get these books by going to buddhadailywisdom.com. From there, you can either download it, download and print it, or you have access to Amazon. You can get these books that way as well. And then tomorrow in our group learning program, we're going to be in the third part of a three-part series where I'm going to be teaching you right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. This is the mental discipline section of the Eightfold Path. So if you would like to attend the class tomorrow with the group learning program, you'll be able to learn those steps of the Eightfold Path in detail. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing our breathing mindfulness meditation class where I'm guiding you guys in breathing mindfulness meditation and opening up to any questions that you might have. So once again, thank you all for joining for today's class. We'll see you in a future class. Have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.